Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Hey, good morning. Good morning. What's wrong with the right side? No, no, no. I'm just saying every Sunday it seems like more and more people move to the left and less and less people sit on the right. I'm just wondering what the deal is. Um, I know, that's the most holy thing I could talk about when I came up here just now, right? <laughs> Your seating arrangement, the halo's disappearing as I speak. Um, how are you guys? Good? Doing good this morning? It's good to see you. Um, my name is Roy, and uh, I am the, the pastor here at Outreach Church. Um, I just go by Roy. I uh, I was talking to somebody recently about that. They said so so. People call you Reverend or. or <laughs> Someone wanted to know. He was curious, you know. And I said, not if they're my friend, you know. If they're my friend, I'm just Roy. And I understand the respect factor, and I understand there's people that want to call you pastor and stuff like that, and that's fine. And you know, I don't have a problem with that, but. But truthfully, um, I hope that what we're, what we're cultivating here and what we're growing here is a family of God where, where we all feel connected to each other and we don't look at certain people as being, you know, the anointed ones. And we understand that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach good news. And all that stuff applies just as much to me as it does to every single person out here. And that, yeah, God has me in a position to declare the Word of God to us in a, in a weekly setting as we gather and we worship and celebrate who He is together, but that that that's not the entirety of our walk or even the, the label of our walk, hopefully. It's not the, the, if Sunday morning is the high point of our experience with God, then we're doing something drastically wrong. Because He is so available all week long and wants to have relationship with us, wants to be in relationship with us and spending time with us and, and us enjoying Him as a Father to be loved by, not some formula to be figured out. And, and if we could understand that, then every day when we wake up, there's an awareness. You know, we sing, I love the words of that song, I'm always on your mind, won't you be always on mine? I love the fact that we're acknowledging God, that, that, that there's a truth that, that God said that He's always watching over us, that He's ever-present, that He's always with us. Jesus said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That there's a truth out there that says that God is never more far away than He is close, no matter what you feel like. And like Mark was talking about, it's so dangerous to react to things based on how I feel about God's presence in my life or how I feel about His closeness in my life. Because then I'm only as good as my feelings. The limit to my life is my, is my ability to feel a certain way. And so if somebody comes along and does something, says something, something happens in my life, circumstance, situation, and my feelings change, so does my standing with God in my mind. And the challenge for us is to never live below our circumstances, but always live above them. Always live mindful of, I have a Father in heaven who loves me, who declared that He will be with me always, even to the end of the age, that I will not leave you as orphans, that if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit, that it's better for you that I go, so that He, the Spirit of truth, can come. And when He comes, He'll lead you and guide you into all truth. That those truths are what we're aware of, and that we actually live our lives from those truths. Live our lives from that place of truth. Our reaction is always filtered through. How would my reaction be if I understood that I have a Father in Heaven who loves me, who promised that He wants to bless me, not harm me, that He has a plan for my life and that it's good and not evil? What if my life was, was filtered through that and so every reaction that I had and every decision that I made was always made mindful of the fact that above all else, God is a Father in Heaven who loves me as His child. Who said, if you know how, being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Heavenly Father? want to give those to them he loves. That he's actually good. He's good. He's really, really, really good. And he wants to be really, really good towards you and for you and through you. It's always been his desire. It's always been to make himself known to his people so his people can make him known to the world. It's never been about just getting you to say a prayer and put your name on a list somewhere and Check it off and say, been there, done that. Now I'm not going to go to hell when I die so I can go back to living like it here on earth. That was never the desire of God's heart. It was always a transformed life that was the desire of His heart. It was always that He would come and live inside of you and that you would be truly changed from the inside out. Not so that you could act differently, so that you could be different. 
And that's the challenge of, of living in new covenant theology, of living in the, in the reality of what Jesus came and gave his life for. And the less we understand of that, the less we know of that, the more danger we have of living our lives at a level that's so far below where Jesus died so that we could live. It's, we, 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 if we're not careful, if we don't diligently seek, if we don't ask, if we don't knock, we risk living our lives at a level that's so far below where Jesus came and gave his life so that we could live. Paul's writing... I believe Paul's writing in Hebrews. I always throw that disclaimer out there because there's people who don't believe that and I don't want them to get stuck on that while I'm reading the verse. But, but I think it was Paul wrote Hebrews. And, and he writes in, in chapter 1, verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And then Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he may show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, you... you Think about who you are in Christ and the position that that's placed you to and where that's elevated you to. And, and sometimes the way that we live our life, sometimes the way that I live my life, I stop for a minute when, I, when, I, when my senses come back to me and I look and I think, wait a minute, I am promised that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's not a one day you will be. That was a present tense reality that Paul's writing. That we are seated with Him. That we're no longer citizens of earth, but citizens of heaven. We're told that too. And if that's a reality in my mind, And then I read in Hebrews and he's just talking about how great the relationship is between Christ and ultimately those who are in Christ and those that are in covenant with the Father. And he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? The angels would love to have the position that we have in Christ. We we, we picture, I mean, think about it. Some of the angels do nothing but but live in his throne room and circle his throne constantly singing holy, holy, holy and praising him and worshiping him. And yet it says, to which of them has he ever said, come sit at my right hand? Who has the favor of God on on their lives to the point that he's ever, which of the angels has ever gained the favor of God to the point that he said to them, okay, come and sit at my right hand. But then we're told I'm seated with Christ. In heavenly places. In other words, to you and I, the invitation has been extended. Come and sit at my right hand. That's something that hasn't even been offered to the angels. It's pretty amazing. Maybe we should let that take the place of feeling sometimes. Maybe we should let that take the place of what we feel like we deserve in life. And what we accept in life. I've said it and I'll continue to say it. I so believe that the biggest danger is never that we overestimate who we are in Christ, but that we underestimate and we live so far below where God desires for us to. How can you overestimate him saying to us, come and be seated at my right hand, which is what Paul tells us that we've, we've been offered. That we're now seated with him. I mean, just think about that. He raised us up with him, not will raise us. This is not... Future tense, this is not one day when the trumpet blows and in the sweet by and by. This is Paul talking about now the position that we have in Christ, which is covenant term, right? In Him. He's always talking about in covenant with Him. So he says that, that, that He made us alive together. When we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. Not will make, has made us alive together with Christ and raised us, not will raise, raised us up with Him and seated, not will seat seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've been extended an offer by, by, by your Father God in heaven to a place at His right hand that even the angels haven't been offered. Maybe that's why the Gospel is good news. Maybe that ought to take the place of any bad news that should come. Think about it. There's been such a huge deposit made into our lives that anything that would try to withdraw can't even come close to making a dent into what's been poured into us. Nothing can, right? Nothing can. That's why the, the, the whole gospel as we read it, is Jesus saying, listen, you guys, you, you have to understand this. If you don't understand this, how will you understand anything else? 
In other words, if you don't know who you are in me, if you don't understand what it is to be born again, how will you understand anything else? Because everything always is based upon that, that we understand who we are in Christ. Then it opens our mind up to be able to believe what is the depth and the height and the width of his love for us. Otherwise, we'll disqualify ourselves because we'll sit in front of people and we'll say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. He knew and he made the decision long before you did it. Well, yeah, but if if you knew my past, maybe you should stop knowing your past. Maybe your past has already been dealt with on the cross and maybe it's irrelevant to his love for you. Maybe your past is part of the reason that Jesus actually came and gave his life on a cross so that you could be set free from it not a tool to block His grace and His love and His mercy. Maybe those things that you're so stuck on, He's already forgotten about and He's waiting for you to forget. Maybe He really is all-knowing. Maybe He really did make the decision to love you and sacrifice long before you were ever born. Maybe there's a chance he knew about all those things that you would do. And rather than loving you based on what you did, he loved you for who you are. And nothing you did ever changed that. I have tattoos, right? Others. It doesn't change who I am. It's not who I am. Something on my skin who I am is who God created me to be and declared that I was. Some of that stuff that's tried to collect on your, li- on your skin and on your life over, the pe- over your life has tried to change you and it's tried to make you think that you're something that you're not. So if you, if you think you're something you're not, you'll live like someone that you're not. So maybe every time that you've been attacked with something, it was to get you to do something so that for the rest of your life, the enemy would have a foothold in your life and be able to come to you and say, yeah, but that can't be true because and start bringing up stuff. And maybe that's why God's grace is so complete and covering that it covers the sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Because long before you were ever born, He sent His Son to die for you. In other words, He didn't wait until you committed that sin and said, ooh, that was a biggie. I better send Jesus quick. Maybe that's why if you're, now, if you're born again, now you're a new creation in Christ. In Christ. A new creation in covenant with the God of the universe through the mediator of the new covenant, His Son, Jesus Christ. And joint heirs with Him to the promise that was given to Abraham and to His seed. And when we say seed, Paul writes, we're not talking about seeds. It says His seed. Why? Because all the promises were towards Christ. Why? Because all of us would be found in Christ. So the promise is made to one man who all men would be found in. Because just as the sin of one man, death entered the world so much more than how through the obedience of the one man grace come that's good news that's good news that god didn't even have to make promises individually to you he just made them all towards his son because his goal his whole goal in life and his whole goal with the new covenant was that you would be found in christ so that you could read and you could see when you see the promises towards christ and understand those are promises towards me when you read the promises made towards abraham and his seed you would understand those are the promises made towards me a lot of us don't even have any idea what the promises that god has made is are We have no idea. I know for a long time in my life, I had no idea all the promises that God had made towards me. I had no idea that I could read through and I could see where God had promised to be this for me and do this for me. Not only that he promised to do it, it wasn't begrudgingly. It wasn't as if I talked him into it. It wasn't as if it was something that he said, okay, I guess I will. It was his idea. He came up with it and he lovingly and excitedly declared it towards me through the scriptures. And it doesn't matter that He declared it if I don't know that and I live my life below what He's declared that He'll do for my life. I perish for a lack of knowledge. That's why Jesus, I mean, that's why the Scripture tells us that my people. It doesn't say unbelievers. I always read that and thought people. I never really got the fact that it says my people, good people, Christian people, perish. That word, when you read it in the original languages, have calamity, destruction, death, ruin, worry, grief. All these things. My people live that way because of a lack of knowledge. It's not because of a lack of promise. It's because of a lack of knowledge which leads us to belief in a promise. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here last week, I'd challenge you to get that, that message 
Um, it was so encouraging to me what God was saying through the story of Caleb. It, you know, that, that, that all he needed was knowledge of the promise of God and it changed the way he looked at everything. As he stood there and he looked, he wasn't looking at the people and the reasons they couldn't do what God had told them they could do. He was seeing through the lens of God is giving us this lens, this land. So when I go there, the people are irrelevant. The harshness of the land is irrelevant. The size of the people is irrelevant. Their armies are irrelevant. Nothing is relevant except for the fact that God promised that he is giving us this land. And so when and I go there, rather than going there to find out why I can't have it, I go there and I look to see what I'm going to do when he does give. Why? Because you cannot know a promise from God and actually believe it without it causing an expectation, which changes the way you live your life. Expectation changes things. It has to change things. Otherwise, there is no true belief. If you don't expect things out of life, it's because you don't believe the promise that God's made. And you can say that you do, and you can say, well, it's just, you know, being humble, and I don't want to assume anything, and who can know the will of God? You can know the will of God for your life by reading the Word and seeing what He's declared, because He's not a man that He should lie. So when He spoke it and declared it over you, it's sealed, and it's truth, and it's unbreakable, and He's elevated His Word above His very name. There's no shadow of turning in Him. So that's it. I just read the Bible and I'll never have to wonder about anything. No, there's always going to be mystery in life. The good part is, is that you know how the story ends. It's with your blessing and not your cursing because of what he's declared. So yeah, there's mystery in life. That's part of the fun of life. Part of the fun of life of saying yes to God is the fact that we get to live in a mystery. The good news is, is that we're not worried about whether it ends with us driving over a cliff and dying in our cars or whether it ends with us getting home safely if we understand that God has promised these things for us and we believe it and we live our lives as though it's true. The cliffhanger part of it kind of ends because he's promised us that he wants to bless us and not curse us. He wants to give us life and not death. These are his declarations to us. You can find them all throughout the Word. All throughout the Word, Scripture speaks of God's heart towards his children, of his desire to bless them. And some people say, well, yeah, you, that's real convenient. You just say that and you leave out everything else. No, it's real convenient because God spoke it. So it's true. And it doesn't change anything just because I can say, well, what about so-and-so or what about so-and-so? Because I'm not going to elevate the testimony of people over the word of God that he spoke. I'm sorry. If i got to go with one, it's going to be him. What they believed, they believed, they believed. Really because the word of God said, if you believe, this will happen. Well, I know that, but they believed it's not to condemn us. That's to say there's a place of living that we don't understand sometimes. And Paul wrote in there, why, they, why the people, you know, it's, so, so Caleb and Joshua get to be the people who go into the promised land. Coincidentally, they were the two that came back and gave the report based on belief in what God would do and rather than unbelief based on what they saw. And those two entered into the promised land, the rest of God, as he talks about in Hebrews. And he says, now we see that those were not able to enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief, not because of God's will, because of God's plan, because of anything else, because of the people in the land, because of the giants, the harshness, none of that stuff. It doesn't say any of that. It says, now we see that they were not able to enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. That's a big deal. Because God said, I'm giving you this land. Was it on God's end? Did he need to re-give the land more to them as they stood there on the edge of it? No, he had already spoke. It was already expressed in the word. What was his will? That they would possess the land. He said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt into a land which I am giving to you that you shall possess it. What was his will for the people? To possess the land. He declared this. So why were only two allowed to go in? Paul tells us, whoever wrote Hebrews tells us very clearly. It's, it's, it's so inconvenient because it gives no answer that we would base a lot of our theology on. But he says, now we see that they were not able to enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. There has to be things in our lives that we have to believe in order for us to take because God's the same as yesterday, today, and forever. There has to be things that we're missing out on because of a lack of knowledge because God said my people perish for a lack of knowledge. My people. Good people. You, me, of grief, loss, calamity, destruction, for a lack of knowledge. But if knowledge puffs up, if the knowledge isn't rooted in the fact that it's only because He loves me, sure, it makes me proud and it makes me feel like I'm something that I'm not. But if I understand that I can only declare these promises are true because He loves me and because of the work of Christ on the cross, then it doesn't puff me up. It gives me the ability to actually believe everything that He said. 
if I believe what he said, then I live my life as though it's true. I know it, 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 we, a lot of what we say is the same thing, right? A lot of the th- times it's, it's the same thing over and over. But the truth of the matter is, is a lot of what Jesus said was the same thing over and over again because a lot of times we need to hear it because we grew up our whole lives listening to the voice of the world, which tells us things are so contrary to what God's Word says. So contrary. So uh, we talked last week a little bit about covenant we're going to launch into a, a series that's going to be teaching on covenant exactly what the covenant that god made with man is what promises did god make that he said we would be heirs of what promises did he make to the seed of abraham who is christ jesus and we're in christ what promises can i stand on and declare that this is what god has declared over my life and i can look at them in the face of anything that comes against me and i can say even though god has said Because you have to have that at some point in your life, you're going to be faced with a decision. Do you believe what the world says? Do you believe what logic says? Do you believe what reason says? Or do you know enough and believe enough of the promises of God towards you in your life to say, even though God said? Because so much of our lives is based on because this, because that, because, and it's all based on things which could have nothing to do with God's promise over my life. And I make decisions based on that because I don't understand or I don't truly believe the promise that God's made. And when I make decisions based on anything other than His will and intention for my life, how then can I expect that my life is lived in the way that He wants me to live it? If I'm a ping pong ball that that bounces from circumstance to circumstance, what guarantee is there that at the end of my ride I'm standing right where God wants me to be? You can't take a fatalistic view and just say, well, if God wants it to happen. God declared a lot of things He wants to happen in the Word. And then through disobedience, people forfeited it. Did it change God's mind? No. Two people were able to possess the promise. Why? Well, if the people who didn't possess it was because of their unbelief, then it has to stand to reason the people who did possess it was because of their belief. Because they believed God. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So it's not enough just to... To know, I think knowing is huge, right? Because we perish for a lack of knowledge. So, so we're going to know this stuff. But, but the reason I wanted to talk about Caleb last week before we talk about covenant is to say this, that there has to be a place of living our lives where we don't just know the promises God's made, but we actually believe them and then make decisions based upon them in the face of everything that we see sometimes. Because otherwise this is just more knowledge that will puff up. Right? And we'll be able to debate people and we'll be able to argue with people, but the fruit of our lives will look no different than the fruit of their lives because even though we know it, we don't believe it, and so it doesn't base the way we live our lives. And we talked about that, right? With swimming, the example I gave last week. And I'm going to go into the new teaching, but I really want to just kind of, some of it's new, some of it's kind of recapping a little bit because I want to bring us to the same page. But I can stand on the edge of the pool all day long and I can tell you the physics of swimming. I can tell you the buoyancy of my body and the density of my body versus the density of water and i can tell you all these principles right and i can explain to you why a human being can swim and the law of propulsion and how something moving forward decreases the drag of of gravity upon it to pull it down and i can explain all of that stuff to you and for all the world sound like i know exactly what i'm talking about and i'm an expert swimmer the truth is if i never jump into the pool and swim it's useless At some point, the knowledge has to turn into something as there's a fire behind me and I'm standing on the edge of something and the water's in front of me. The knowledge has to transfer into action and I have to act on what I believe versus what I see. And if I act on what I see and I look down in the water and all I see is something that was thrown into the water and it's sunk to the bottom, then what good does everything that I know do if seeing that cancels it out? Or if I hear the story about, well, yeah, I knew a guy that believed that one time, but he jumped into a lake and he tried to swim and he drowned. So it can't be true, because our experience always dictates truth. And he said all the same things you did. And then he jumped in and he drowned. At some point, has to go from something that I know and I can say to something that I actually believe to the point that it causes action in my life. And I actually find myself with my feet off the ground heading towards the water ready to swim. At some point, the things that we know God's spoken have to change the way we live our lives to where we actually move because of His promise rather than circumstance or convenience. Has to. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 6.25. 
We're going to read from there. We're going to jump around a little bit. I apologize. We don't have words on the screen today. Both of the guys who normally do that are out of town on the same weekend. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry about that, but maybe this will reinforce what I say every week. Have a Bible. Have a Bible. There will not be a guy following you around with a projector and a screen when the life comes at you and you need to see what God's spoken to you. You need to have a word that you can open up and you can look at, something that you've written in as God's written in as God has spoke to you because he wants to speak to you, right? You guys know that he wants to speak to you. My sheep hear my voice and they know my voice. If we can know and hear his voice, it's only because he wants to speak. And as he speaks, his Holy Spirit reveals stuff to you. Write it down. Take notes. Be excited about it. Share it with your friends. Share it with other people. Share it here at church with people. Because a lot of the things that God speaks to you, even if you already know it, or even if it's already something that's a principle in your life, may be for everybody else around you because they may not know it. They may need to hear it. Or maybe they knew it, but they need to be reinforced in it. They need to be reminded in it. So Matthew 6.25, Jesus is speaking. And he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For, the Father, for after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that we have written record of who you are. God, of who you've called us to be, of the life that you've called us into, of who you want to be in our lives, God. It's not fairy tale. It's not ancient history. It's not something we read just to admire. It's something we read to understand your plan and your will for our lives. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just open our ears to hear, truly hear, our minds to be able to understand and our hearts to receive that we would be good soil, That your words and your truth, God, would produce fruit in our lives. So that the world can taste and see that you're good. Because of the fruit that we bear as your children. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that. I love when God showed me that. I'm going to repeat that all the time too. But the way the world tastes and sees that the Lord is good is through the fruit borne by Christians. I love it. God intends for you to bear fruit and fruit that remains. Why? Because He wants the world to taste and see that He's good. He wants the world to experience what it's like to come into a relationship and come into contact with somebody who's full of His Holy Spirit that's bearing fruit. That's His intention and that's His will for your life. That's that's part of the promise and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit inside you. That if you remain in Me, in covenant with Me, in Me, anytime you see in Me, it's always talking about covenant. When you're in Me, when I'm in Him and He's in Me, the triune God, the three in one, they're in covenant with each other. Father with the Son, with the Spirit, with the Father. And we've been called into that covenant. We've been called into that relationship. So when you see in Me, it's always talking about in covenant with Me. Just put that word into your vocabulary and start looking for that everywhere that you read in me. If you abide in me, if you abide where? In covenant with me. I abide with you, in you, in covenant with you. Who's the one on that end of the equation that's shaky, prone, if they're not careful? Yeah, it's not him. Because he's faithful even when we're faithless. The word tells us that. It's in Timothy, it's in your Bible. He's still faithful. He still means every word he says to you. Sometimes we, like the prodigal son, kind of want to wander away from that relationship and live our lives in a way that isn't based on his truth and in a way that he wouldn't desire for us. He doesn't cut us off from relationship. He waits there until we're ready to come back and then he welcomes us back and restores us to a position that makes people who have been there their whole lives jealous at times. And if you're an older brother that's never wandered away and always been faithful, don't ever find yourself wishing that you would have wandered away so that you could have the story of the one that didn't because you've been with him always. You just don't understand how beautiful that is. 
And you need to be encouraged in that. I had a, we were, I spoke at a, a youth thing, and those of you that know my story know it's an, it, it is an amazing testimony of what God can do with a life, right? It's the, not because I'm amazing, it's because he created me to be amazing, and he never gave up on me, and he walked me through it and saw me through it. And because he's faithful even when I was faithless. But I was telling my, my story to a bunch of kids, and afterwards I had this, this um, young girl came up, and she said, you know, I just, that was so awesome and so moving, and I just wish that I kind of, I sometimes wish I had a story like that to tell people. And I said, well, what's your story with God? I don't, I've just, I've always loved him. I've never smoked, drank, I haven't even cussed. And I said, you don't understand how beautiful that is. And don't you ever despise the fact that you've been faithful to God from a young age because I promise you the day's coming where you'll be able to look back and see how much heartache and pain he spared you from. Yeah. You don't have to put your leg in the trap and have it almost take your ankle off to realize how good it is to not have your leg in the trap when it comes off. Okay? Just be thankful for that, right? Just be thankful that you don't have the scars around your ankle and that you didn't have to go through the pain of having your leg in that trap that you could actually say, you know what? I, I believed God at a young age. I gave Him my life. I devoted my life to Him. I loved Him and I know He's loved me and I've walked in that love for Him since I was young. That's an amazing testimony. That's the one I desire for my children. I hope they don't have a story like mine. Because I don't want to have a story like my mom's. <laughs> no. The worst part is when you think the trap is fun and you let it sink in deeper and deeper because all the while you can't even feel the pain because you're doing so much stuff that numbs it. And then one day the stuff that you've been taking that numbs it isn't available or wears off and you find yourself sitting there feeling nothing but the pain of that trap in your leg and you realize, I didn't just get here overnight. The good news is, is you don't have to take your whole life trying to get back out of the trap. He has no intention for it taking you years and years and years. He has no intention of that. Why? Because he didn't plan for you to waste any of it up to that point. He certainly doesn't plan to give the enemy any more room in your life to waste your life trying to get back to somewhere where he's always desired for you to be. How long did the prodigal son have to work his way back into the favor and grace of God? How long did it take before he was placed into a position where he could enjoy the benefit and the blessing of the father? How long did he make him suffer and go through therapy before he was able to live the way he wanted him to live his whole life? None. Zero. The day he made the decision, that night they had a party. And he was restored and given the ring and the robe and placed at the table and celebrated. He doesn't intend for you to waste any more of your life than you already have. He doesn't intend for any of it to be a waste. Because every single giant that came at you that was intended to kill you, one by one, he intends to give you the ability to cut their heads off and hold them up for the army of Israel to embolden those people around you. So every time a giant comes at you and touches you, he does so at his own risk because there's every opportunity that maybe you'll understand the covenant you have with God like David did and maybe you'll run down into the valley rather than standing there paralyzed. And that maybe you have no intention of being a slave for one more day of your life. Maybe that whole giant should have never stood down there and yelled that day because you happened to be walking by bringing your brother's food. And he opened his mouth for the last time and maybe the head came off and maybe you held it up. And I love that David, listen, it's, I know it's kind of gruesome, right? But David doesn't just take the head and leave it laying there. It says that he carried it with him. He held it up for the army of Israel to see. They look down into the, into the valley and here's this young boy holding up this huge giant's head for them to see. And it says that it emboldened the army of the Israelites and they chased and pursued and overtook and slew the Philistines. All it took was one person believing the covenant he had with God to walk into the valley and do what God promised he would do. That's all it took. One person to have the courage to say, he's down there, he's bigger, he comes at me with all these things, but I've got a promise from God that says that he can't win. Because he's not coming at me. You understand when you're a child of God, it's not you that the enemy's attacking, it's God himself. And it says that God will fight for you. Now here's the thing though. We read about this last week, right? And I'm just going to segue right into my notes real smoothly here. Jesus is, I mean, uh, God is relaying, is relaying to the jo- people in Joshua, to stay excited, jo- he's relaying to the people, 
in Joshua 24, 8, right? And he says, but then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of the land when I destroyed them before you. So here's a question. Who defeated the Amorites, Israelites or God? The answer is yes. Wait, this is God speaking. This, this whole verse 24, I mean, chapter, um, chapter 24, is, it says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, so now everything he's saying after that is God himself speaking through Joshua. This isn't Joshua's opinion or Joshua's recount of what he thinks happened. This is God. And he says, then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you. Who did they fight with? The Israelites. And I gave them into your hand. Who gave them into their hand? God. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Who destroyed them? God. By whose hand? Israelites. This is the essence of covenant with God. It's that He's always, always, always desired to see His will upon the earth accomplished through the hands of His people. And so David runs down into their believing of promise. But more than that, he had to actually run into the valley. He had to actually swing the sling. He had to actually throw the stone. He had to actually grab the sword. He had to actually cut the head off. And then days later, he comes to the camp of Saul. And what's he carrying with him? The head. It's days later. He comes before Saul. And he's still dragging that head around. Why? Because there were still people who had heard the stories of Goliath and didn't hear the story of how he'd been killed. And he wanted them to know that thing that you were afraid of that stood down in the valley and made you paralyzed and stay up on the, on the, on the cliffs for so long. Here he is. He's dead. He has no more authority. He has no more power. He has nothing down there left to, to scare you with. He's dead. I cut his head off. Here it is. We drag around a ton of giant's heads. By the end of our lives, hopefully, we've got a janitor's key ring of giant's heads. Of things that the enemy has tried. I'm serious. Listen, the enemy will come at us so many ways, right? And when one way stops working, he'll come at us another. Look at the life of David. Just because he cut one giant's head off didn't mean the rest of his life he lived in that victory. You can't settle and coast with God. Okay? You can't just coast along and say, well, I defeated that giant back then. Guess what? There's another one popping up. And he has the same intention. It's to make you a slave. The, the, he didn't even want to kill the Israelites. You guys, uh, we, we read that story and sometimes we forget this was a war, but what was their intention? Their intention was to enslave the Israelites, to make them their captives and force them to live life on their terms the way they wanted them to live. Send down a champion. He will fight ours. And if you defeat him, we will be your slaves. But if he defeats your champion, you will become our slaves. They didn't want to kill them as much as they wanted to control them and enslave them. Ultimately, they would have died in that slavery. They would have died in that frustration. They would have died in that abuse. So the ultimate goal was death. But they wanted it to be a long, slow process which served their purposes along the way. I'm telling you, the enemy wants to kill you, but he doesn't want to just take you out tomorrow. He wants it to be a long, slow process of you serving his purposes along the way. Why? Because if you're dead, he's got you, but he doesn't have all the people that you have influence with. It's the reason God doesn't kill you the second you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and take you up to heaven because He's not interested in just having you. He wants to have you and He wants to have you on the earth accomplishing what He's set out for you to do so that not only you get saved, but the people in your household and the people you have influence with and your sphere of influence and people that you run into and complete strangers and everybody else can hear what God did for you. It's never about just getting you saved and getting you off the earth to be in heaven. It's about getting you saved to get heaven down into you so that the kingdom of heaven can come to earth. That's why Jesus said, pray that thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God has every intention. So the first covenant that God makes with man, and I, I believe this is a covenant um, because you can find all the principles of covenant pretty much taking place. Now, there are different levels of covenant. Sometimes God makes a covenant with man which has nothing to do with man, right? Remember with Noah, he said in this this I will do. I'll place my bow upon the sky as a sign of the covenant that I've made with you. And every time I see it, it will remind me of that covenant that never again will I flood the earth. So sometimes God makes a covenant with man which is totally dependent on him. So the covenant he made with Noah was a promise that said, I bind myself to this word that I'm giving to you, that I will never again flood the earth this way. And this rainbow is the sign of the covenant that I'm making with you. And this covenant was one where, where Adam actually entered into covenant with God. So Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So God creates man and then gives him his responsibility, his part of the agreement that they're going to make on how their relationship works. He initiates this covenant that they enter into, and he says, I'm giving you dominion over everything. And he said, I, the, ever, everything that, that is upon the earth, I am giving to you. Now go subdue it. Sounds a lot like when he said to the Israelites, into a land which I am giving you, now go and take it. In other words, it doesn't just come. The, the Adam didn't just sit down in the garden and prop his feet up and say, well, you gave it all to me, and so earth be subdued. It doesn't work like that. The Israelites couldn't stand outside the land and just say, you gave it to us, so be ours and just watch everybody fall dead. He said, they came and they fought you and I delivered them into your hands and, and I went before you and destroyed them through the hands of the Israelites. It's always that God wants to be in partnership and in covenant with man to accomplish his will and his purpose upon the earth. It's the desire that he has for you and I. And we're going to talk a lot about the, the new covenant and the covenant that he's made with Abraham in the weeks to come. But, but here we see God is establishing this relationship of covenant. It's a relationship that has boundaries, right? He tells man, he says, of everything that's here in the garden, you can have everything except that tree. So there's one rule. There's a, there's a purpose, which is to subdue the earth, which is God accomplishing and extending His rule and His reign, His kingdom over the earth, right? And that mandate hasn't changed. Our mandate is the same from God. It's to go and extend the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of the King here on earth, the way it is in heaven. In heaven, it's the complete domain of God's rule and reign. There is nothing outside of that. And now He prayed for us to, uh, to pray that His kingdom would come and His will would be done here on earth, the way it is in heaven. And he uses man to do that. So it's the same thing. We see this. It's kind of a lot of threads that weave throughout all of the covenants. And one of them is that God has always intended for the people that he's in covenant with to be his hands and feet and to accomplish his will and his purpose here on the earth. He has chosen to work through man on earth. It's why when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't come as Jesus, an angel or Jesus, a lamb or Jesus, any of those things. He comes as Jesus, a man, because God has chosen to use man to accomplish everything on the earth. Everything in partnership with him by his power, absolutely, but through the hands of man. And so, and he says to him, he, he lays out the, the rules of it, and he says, Listen, if you don't, if you eat of that tree, then you'll die. The implication is, if you don't eat of that tree, then you won't die. Right? He doesn't specifically say that, but if eating of the tree meant death, then not eating of the tree must have meant life, because we read in Romans that through the sin of Adam, through the sin of one man, death entered the world. So death only came as a result of sin, which meant before the sin, there was only life. So the promise was, do what I've asked you to do. Don't do what I've asked you not to do. I've given you everything that you need. I've created for you a paradise. My desire is to have relationship with you, to love you and be loved by you, and for you to accomplish my will upon the earth. That was it. It was so simple. Just one thing they couldn't do. You ever leave your kids alone in a room and tell them the one thing they can't do? You ever come back and found out they did it? We never have. Our kids are perfect like that, but but shame on you guys. You must be sparing the rod and spoiling the child. Okay, so they have done that. I'm about to give my own altar call for lying and answer it myself. Uh, our kids have at times done things that we've told them not to do. In fact, there's been times where I've told them they could do anything but the one thing and I leave the room and I come back and find them doing the one thing I told them they couldn't do. Even though the other things were so much better and even though they knew there was a penalty for doing the one thing, for some reason, that one thing just drew them in. So... You probably at some point in your life have chosen the one thing that you knew you shouldn't amongst all the things that you know you should. So before we get too hard on Adam, just realize this, every one of us would have done the same thing at some point. Because every one of us has done the same thing at some point. Every one of us has known the one thing we shouldn't and all the things we should, and yet chosen the one thing that we shouldn't. 
everyone. I hear people say, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to have a word with Adam. Trust me. Hey, <laughs> when you get to heaven, that what you're feeling won't be in you so that you won't have the ability to do that. But B, he would shut you up in about five words, probably. Somebody would. Probably Paul. He was the most confrontational of all the disciples that I could find. Either Paul or Peter would probably come and in about ten words would shut you up really quickly and let you know that you're no different than Adam, that you've made the same decision over and over and over and over again. In fact, we don't read about Adam disobeying God anymore after that first time. So for all you know, you've got one against him and he's got about 50 million against you. So I'm not saying there was no more disobedience. I am saying that it's not recorded. So for the one that you can stand on and know is true, think back to your life about how many times you did the one thing you know you shouldn't and realize that you would probably feel foolish having an argument with him about it. Okay, and you didn't even the temptation that you gave into and that I gave into wasn't even that I would be like God. Sometimes it was something so stupid as like, you'll you'll get high. Like, yeah, I mean that like Adam at least fell for the line that he would become like God. I sold myself for way cheaper than that. All right. I'm getting so far out here. I gotta reel it. I gotta reel it back in. You guys get me all excited so many Sundays lately. I'm serious. I I love it. Like, right. So, so then we see that that like people do, they break the covenant with God, right? And so, God then sets another precedent. See, I, I love studying the Old Testament. People sometimes are shocked, you know, when I talk to them. They say, man, for a young guy, you love the Old Testament. Most young guys love the New Testament. I love the New Testament, too. I love both of it. But there's so much that we can learn about the nature and character of God by reading about the way he dealt with people in the Old Testament. And then the great thing about that is, is that everything that's good and promised in there, the New Covenant, according to Hebrews, is based on a better covenant with better promises. So as excited as we get when we read stuff in the Old Testament, we have to understand this, that our promise and our covenant is at least as good and probably better in every area because it's a better covenant based on better promises. Better promises. So all the promises, when you read a promise from the Old Testament, you can go, man, that's cool. Mine's better. Right? That's something I heard so many. That, that's the Word of God. Right? Like, and I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm being like serious. Maybe we should have a mindset where when we read something and we're so blown away by the goodness of God to, revealed in the old covenant, and then we say, man, as amazing that, as that is, my, my covenant's better. Dan Moeller said that to me so many times when we were hanging out turkey hunting. We're walking through the woods, and I saw poison oak. And I said, watch out, there's poison oak over there. He looks at me and says, I have a better covenant than that. <laughs> he didn't get poison oak. Tom Snyder says the same thing. We'll be talking about things. And, and sometimes Tom will be having a day where he's a little bit down about something and he'll be kind of venting a little bit. And I'll say, yeah, but compared to so many people, you have this, this, and this. And he'll look at me and he'll say, yeah, but my covenant is so much better than that. He can't even allow himself to be cheered up a little bit by what he does have because he understands the covenant to the point that when he sees a lack in his life, he's not satisfied until it's filled. There should be an expectancy like that in our lives. Not where we're not happy. He's still a happy, joyful person. But there's also an expectation that, wait a minute, God's promised this and I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm not going to be content until I have what God's promised me. Right? Well, yeah, but with being content is with godliness and you know, having all these things, we'll be content. Our contention is based on the fact that we have everything that we need promised to us. But there's an expectation in our lives that those promises will be fulfilled. Otherwise, we don't truly believe because belief creates expectation. It has to. If I tell my kids we're going to the pool, it creates an expectancy in them that we're going to the pool. Unless I've told them 50 times that we're going and we haven't gone. Then they have reason to doubt me. Then they have reason to not believe. And then they have reason to not have expectations. Until God lets us down on one of his promises, we have no reason to ever stop expecting. We have no reason ever to not believe. So man falls, and, and, and here God sets another precedent that, that kind of flows as a, as a constant thread throughout all the covenants, and that is the shedding of blood. Right? In Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord made garments. I can try to wind this in. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden he put of, of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which was turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So two points about that. One is this, that there had to be the shedding of innocent blood to cover for the sin. He doesn't kill the snake. And it's neither Adam nor Eve who dies to pay the penalty for the sin. And you notice it says that in the, in, earlier in Genesis 3, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loin coverings. They immediately tried to make their own covering for the sin which they had committed, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt. And so many times we do that, and God comes onto the scene, and, and it, He doesn't even address the covering that they tried to make. He doesn't even for a minute think maybe that's good enough. He doesn't for a minute say, well, you did a pretty good job, you guys. He doesn't give them kudos for figuring out how to make loin coverings using leaves because no matter how good it looked to either of them, no matter how good our covering that we try to make for our own sin looks to people, when God comes onto the scene, it doesn't stop us from feeling naked and ashamed because Adam was completely covered, had made himself a loincloth, yet he still hid from God when God came walking in the garden. Why? Because he knew standing in front of God that the thing that he had done to cover his sin wasn't good enough. He understood that real quickly. God knew that. No matter what you've done to try to cover that thing, it's not acceptable to God outside of the sacrifice that He makes that covers for our sin. And it may look good to people, and it may cover you for a time, and people might tell you, oh yeah, that's good, that's good, you've done enough, you've done this, you've done that, and you may feel really good about it, but when you're standing in the presence of God, you'll understand that this, what I have done, doesn't cover me properly, and you'll start looking for a place to hide, and you'll spend your life like Adam trying to hide from God, ashamed of what you've done. God comes, and immediately there's the shedding of innocent blood, an animal that had nothing to do with the fall, an animal that was completely innocent of the whole thing, gives its life so that covering can be made to cover up Adam and Eve. And that thread winds all the way through, right? All the way through. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the shedding of blood and the covenant um, coming up. But, but the other thing I want to point out, and this is something that Tom um, showed me when we, were, when we were talking about this verse one time a while ago, is that there's two trees in the middle of the garden. Two trees. One was the knowledge of good and evil, one was the tree of life. He told them they couldn't eat from the knowledge of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning they probably ate from the tree of life at that time, which is what sustained them and would have kept them living forever. They would have never died. And then when man falls, God takes them out of the garden and cuts them off and says, now that they know good and evil, now that they've made their choice and they've chosen evil in this, we can't let him reach out and take any more from the tree of life otherwise he'll live forever and i used to read that and think oh that was such a punishment right and i would think man that stinks i wish that adam had done that because because then we could or why would god do that why would god make us not able to eat from the tree of life just because he made that one mistake and i used to think man that was just such a punishment and, and in a way it was a consequence of sin it was a result of sin but it wasn't punishment it was actually mercy and it was actually loving that god did that because had Adam not been able to then eat from the tree of life, man would have lived forever in a state of being unredeemed, separated from God by his sin, and fallen. Not only that, but there would have been no way that Jesus could have came as a man and given his life for the redemption of everyone. See, God's always good. Even when it looks like punishment to us, it's actually his goodness and his mercy. And he's saying, I cannot stand to have my creation live forever in this state of being fallen, separated, hidden, guilty, shamed, naked. I must make a covering for them now, and I will make a covering for them for all time. And I have to be able to cut the ability for man to live forever off from their physical body so that I can give them the ability to live forever. Had he not done that, Jesus couldn't have came and gave his life as a man to redeem all of humanity. It's his goodness. It's his mercy. Start looking for his goodness and his mercy when you read the word and you'll find it even when you think it's bad. Even what looks to me like punishment sometimes from the outside when you start looking at it or you get revelation from someone who has looked at it that way, you see that even what looked like mean punishment from God and Him keeping us from something that would have been so good, you understand, was only his goodness and his mercy that made him do that. Because now there actually is a way that I can leave this life, this unredeemed state that we live here on earth, and I can be born again as a new creation in Christ because He came and gave His life 
and actually died a physical death for my sin. So he's always had man's best interest in mind. He's always had it in mind. He's always wanted to bless man. Think about this. And and I'm just going to close up with this and we'll start up next week somewhere in here. Um, But really all he wanted from Adam and Eve was a few simple things. One, that they would love him and be loved by him. That they would live in relationship, loving God and being loved by God. And two, that they would trust him and that they would obey him. And we'll see that throughout every bit of covenant that we talk about, that God has always wanted from His children. He's always desired that we would be loved by Him and love Him and that we would trust Him and obey Him because we love Him, not out of fear and dread. He didn't want to threaten Adam and Eve to the point that they did stuff. He wanted them to love Him and trust Him and obey Him. That's why He left the tree in the middle of the garden. He didn't cut them off from their choice to make the wrong decision because He wanted them to choose Him. That's why so many of us have made so many bad mistakes is because God doesn't want robots that He controls. He wants people who will choose to love Him and be loved by Him, who will choose to trust Him and obey Him. And His promise has always been, if you will trust and obey, then I will provide and protect. That's the thread that weaves throughout covenant from the beginning to the end. And we're going to go through the stages and steps of covenant. And we're going to go through the covenant with Abraham and how that replies to the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus and talk about all these things because I really do think that for a lack of knowledge, a lot of my life has perished. A lot of my life has had calamity. A lot of my life was brought death because I didn't know that God was that good. I didn't know that He loved me that much. I didn't know about a lot of the promises that He'd made, who He wanted to be. I didn't understand the covenant. I didn't know that this relationship that I have is something that angels would dream to having. That the position I have in Him, in covenant with Him, is something that's so lofty that He's never even offered it to any of the angels. I didn't know that. And because of that, I made a lot of my decisions based out of ignorance rather than knowledge. And because of that, a lot of my life, I didn't expect the goodness of God. I didn't anticipate the goodness of God. And I disqualified myself from seeing it because I looked at myself through the lens of my own eyes rather than the covenant promise of God. And that's the worst thing that we can do because nobody can disqualify you more than yourself. You know, if nobody else believes in you, but you believe in yourself, you're okay. Right? If nobody else believes in you, if nobody else believed Caleb, he's still fine because he believes the promise of God and he believes that he can because God said. And so he's fine. But the other spies that went into the land disqualified themselves and there was nothing that anybody could say to them that made them okay. There was nothing anybody could say to them that made them want to go into the land and have the confidence that they could take it because they had disqualified themselves because when they walked into the land, rather than walking in the promise and knowledge of God's promise to them, they went into the land and they looked around and they saw themselves through their own eyes and they judged their chances based on their own skill and they said, we saw the people in the land, the Nephilim. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes and in our eyes too. In other words, we disqualified ourselves. Caleb could have talked to them forever in a day. It did not matter because they had already in their mind disqualified themselves from being able to take what God had promised. So you're okay if the world doesn't believe you. As long as your knowledge is based on what God's promised, then you believe Him. And because of that, you believe in you. It's when you stop believing what God said about you is true and you start basing it on what the world would say or what your own mind would say or the enemy's thoughts or the enemy's condemnation would say that you start getting in shaky ground because once you disqualify yourself, there's not a whole lot left that others can do for you. But I can tell you all day long who you are in Christ and the promises He's made to you if you don't believe that you're in Christ, you don't believe that you're righteous. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. He was talking about the covenant life of living with God under the rule and reign of the king. That's the kingdom of God. It wasn't a physical location like it was for the Israelites. They had to go into an actual physical land. For us, living in the kingdom of God, living in the promised land, is living in covenant with God no matter where we are. So he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Why his righteousness? Why? Because all of God's promises are always to a holy people, a chosen generation, set apart, all those things. And if you think you're unholy, if you think you're not chosen, if you think you're not set apart because of what you've done, you won't be able to believe the promises God's made towards you. So you seek the kingdom, you seek the covenant relationship with God and His righteousness. You know what the great thing about that is? Is There's another promise in the Word that says if you seek, you will be fine. If you knock, it will be opened. If you ask, it will be given. So you seek His righteousness. And what do you receive from Him when you seek? The promise of the Word is His righteousness. Because He became sin who knew no sin. 
and you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So once you understand the covenant that you have and you understand that that makes you righteous because you're in Christ, then you're able to actually read the promises that He's made and believe that they're true for you and not disqualify yourself based on the things you've done wrong, but qualify yourself because of what Jesus did right. There's a big difference in those two. So we're going to, for a while, we're going to be talking, going through covenant and understanding that. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that that we have this covenant relationship. God, that it was your plan. God, that we didn't get our heads together and think how great it would be if the God of the universe would send his son to die in my place so that I could take the reward that was due for because of his obedience. That that wasn't my idea. I didn't talk you into it, God, that you thought of that on your own. That it was your will and your desire for my life. I thank you for that. I thank you that there's an invitation to live my life in Christ, in covenant with you. God, that all of your promises are yes and amen through Christ who I'm in. God, that something you've never said to any of the angels, which is come and be seated at my right hand, you've said and you've extended and you've said that you've placed me there in Christ. God, I pray that our minds would just not disqualify us as we talk about these things, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to disqualify us from promises that you've made, that we would have belief, God, that we would be able to enter into the rest that you've promised, God, that we'd be able to enter into the life that you've promised, God, that we wouldn't be those people that Paul said, now we see because of their unbelief they were unable to enter, God, but that we would be able to believe your word in spite of what circumstance and feeling and memory tells us that we would trust and obey you. I thank you for that, God. I thank you even through this week that you just continue to show us God, that that we can make our decisions knowing that we have a loving Father who's for us and not against us. That my decision can be made knowing fully that I have the favor of heaven on my life. That I have the Holy Spirit living within me. And you promised God that he would lead and guide me into all truth. And that I not only can believe that, but that I begin to expect that in my life. God, that your word says that I don't have to chase after goodness and mercy, but that surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life because I walk after the shepherd. I thank you for that, God. I thank you just for reminding us of who we are in you, how much you love us, and all that you've called us to. God, that you never intended us for us to be saved without a purpose for our lives, and that purpose is to bring the reign and rule of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And that anything you've ever called us to do, you've made the way for us to, and you've empowered us to. I thank you for that, God. I ask you this week that as we leave, God, that when we go into our workplace, that we would experience you. When we go into our school, we would experience you. When we go into our homes, we would experience you. That everywhere we turn, there you are, God. That we're ever aware of you the way you're always aware of us. That we would look for places, God, where we can speak the truth of your your word, God, into people's lives. That we can actually be your agents here on earth. Ambassadors for the kingdom. I thank you for that. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never understood, never entered into that covenant relationship with you, never exchanged their life for yours, God, never given the life that they have so that they could receive the life that you offer, God, that Holy Spirit, right now, you just begin to move in their heart, showing them that God has so much more for them, that he has such a better life than the life that they've lived, that everything they've done can be gone as if it never happened, that it can be removed from them as far as it's removed from you, as far as the east is from the west lost in the sea of forgetfulness, that you will remember their sin no more. I thank you, God, that if there's anyone here who's never made that exchange, Holy Spirit, that you would just lead them and guide them towards that, that they would have a longing, a desire in their heart, that they would give up the life they've been holding on to and reach hold and take the life that you've offered, that they could go through the exchange. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If that's you, and, and I was saying this stuff about the exchange and giving up the old life and taking on the new life, and, and, and you've never done that, or you've never really, you know, maybe you said a prayer one time or whatever, and you just feel God moving in your heart as I'm saying that, our prayer team's going to be up here afterwards. Not just for that. They'll be up here to pray for anything that you need prayer for. Um, but if that's you and, you, and you you would identify with what I was saying, then let somebody know up here that they can pray with you and encourage you and speak God's word. and and show you how easy it is to give up the life that you've been living and take hold of the life that He's offered. It's not a, it's not a formula. 
It's the attitude and position of the heart. But there is something to opening your mouth and confessing with your mouth what you believe in your heart. So if that's you, I'd invite you to just let somebody know up front here. Um, Our prayer team will be up here right now as we close up. If you need prayer for anything, you need healing in your body, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Um, If you just, you know, maybe you're facing a tough decision and, and, and you need wisdom from God. It says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely to all men. Of course, there's the, you have to believe, because if you don't expect it, you receive nothing. That little pesky belief thing keeps popping up no matter where you go maybe it's time we actually put some stock in it and start really asking god i believe but help my unbelief that's a whole new sermon but um yeah if if you just need you know you need wisdom you just you want someone to pray for you you're facing a decision you don't know which way to go and you want wisdom you want fresh perspective you need any of that stuff if you just we believe in and we love laying hands on people and praying for them it's one of the instructions that paul says is a basic of the faith the laying on of hands. And we want to be able to impart and pray. So if you need anything at all, come up here and let someone pray for you. Be encouraged. Find someone you don't know before you leave today. Say hey to him. Dustin's back in town. His, <laughs> yeah, with his new wife. Yeah, he is. Um, and so um, say hey to them and, and welcome them back. And we love you guys. We have youth tonight. If you are in fifth grade, but going into sixth grade, you're welcome to come. We are going to have our Vine uh, gospel competition tonight, which our kids are being challenged. To We're going to have props where they can dress up. They have to create a Vine video presenting the gospel in nine seconds. The winner's going to get a prize. Yeah, I already have my idea, and I'm going to say it now so that nobody steals it, okay? But mine is, uh, I'm going to make a big felt mustache, and I'm going to come in front of the screen and say, I must ask you a question. Are you shaved? It's awful, right? I'll lose. That's my idea. Anyways, and we're going to be having ice cream and hanging out and getting to know the kids who haven't been coming and and having fun with the ones who have. We invite you guys to come. Bring your friends. Um, That starts tonight at 6. And we love you guys. The marriage class, um, Happily Ever After, is starting back up in September. We'll be announcing the date as soon as we have it for sure. It'll be a Sunday evening in September. Um, We love you guys. Say hey to somebody, and we'll see you soon.